This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. Go to renthal.com for the Fit My Bike to check out all the different parts you're able to put onto your bike from renthal.com. Steve English, Adam Wheeler, David Emmett, Neil Morrison on the show today looking back at the San Marino Grand Prix from Mizano. Dave, I'm going to actually just come straight to you right from the outset because you weren't in Mizano. Coincidentally, the Dutch Formula One Grand Prix was on and you were nowhere to be seen for the weekend. So clearly you went to see the four-wheeled action. I went to uh, 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 drink beer, harass women, and generally make myself obnoxious. Um, no, uh, I uh, I can't even remember. I think I said on the on the last pod that I'd um, uh, torn something in me in my car picking my motorbike up because I'm a silly Billy. Um, it turns out I've torn the fascia in my in the calf, um, and it's getting much much better. I can actually walk now um, without looking like uh, I've only got one leg. So so yeah, things things are much better. Uh, genuinely um, gutted not to have been because there, there are so many reasons. Wait, to gutted have been. not to have been at Mizano or gutted not to be at the Formula One? No, 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 no. I, I, I will going to tell you. You better be sitting down because I'm going to tell you something which will shock you. I have actually been uh, to an F1 race at Zandvoort, um, but this was probably 1979, 1980. Uh, so it was some time ago. I tell you what, Dave. It's not surprising at all, considering the the lady doth protest too much about your hatred of Formula One. Um, Neil, I'm going to come to you next because behind me, for anyone watching on the the video podcast, they're able to see a couple of pictures of Andrea Davizioso. It's taken you a couple of days to get over to get yourself into an emotional place to be able to to talk about MotoGP and the San Marino Grand Prix. But how was Sunday for you to see Davi walk off into the sunset? Very emotional, Steve, unsurprisingly, and still trying to uh, get my emotions in check, you know, pull myself together. Um, so if I kind of suddenly start blobbing, breaking down on this call, um, yeah, still I'm coming to terms with uh, a MotoGP without uh, the great man. Yeah, it is going to be a little bit different, obviously enough, you're basically 20 years we've had Dovey as a fixture on the grid, more or less, in the 125s, 250s, MotoGP classes. But Adam, what about you? It was obviously a busy weekend, you were at Mizano for the GP, there was MXGP on as well, so flat out weekend for you. Yeah, and also the last round of the AMA, for, well, the 450 and 250s, of course, at Pala, and the second time that that series went there, Steve, and, and there was only um, one point between Eli Tomac and Chase Sexton, so there was always that to keep an eye on as well. So, yeah, it was a busy one. Um, I wasn't distraught like Neil over the retirement of Dovey, but, uh, yeah, you know, it's. Um, I think it's a little bit of a loss to the grid. Same thing as Valentino Rossi, though. I mean, I don't think Dovey's absence will affect the results sheets too much but um he's a character and he always had some great insight into you know racing motorcycles and being part of that championship so uh and it's quite encouraging to see his fan group or his posse or whatever give him such a big send-off on sunday that was pretty cool yeah it seems that there was a big party on sunday night obviously you were too busy working away to be able to enjoy a few beers with them but uh just looking at the the weekend i will we'll kick off with you and uh, what was your big moment of the weekend uh, for me, Steve, it has to be that last lap. Um, we knew that Enea Bastinini would be doing his best to preserve his tyres. He'd come back from 12th and something like 15th or 16th in the two San Marino rounds last year and reached the podium. So he was, he has a, it's arguably his strongest track of the season. 
Um, and when he was chasing Bagnaia on the last lap, we thought, okay, here it comes. And they nearly collided. Um, it was fantastic entertainment. Uh, 0.03 at the finish line, uh, you know, you can point a finger at MotoGP and say we haven't had enough overtaking and that race was kind of cat and mouse a little bit. There wasn't a huge amount of overtaking like we've seen in years past. But for me, I thought it was the definition of a good race. You don't really know who's going to win. There was different strategies on play and uh, it was it was good to watch. Uh, 0.034 at the end, which is uh, uh, Andrea Dovizioso's one true race number rather than the 0.4 he was forced to adopt uh, because 34 got uh, retired. So um, I thought that was rather that was a rather nice touch. I uh, uh, could uh, Bastianini have gone past him. I'm not sure because what Bagnara explained is he had to um, basically the traction area of his tire was used, so he, he knew he couldn't sort of do what they normally do, which is pick it up a little bit early and then get on the gas. Uh, so he just ran in hot, used as much corner speed as possible, and that basically prevented Bastianini from trying to outbreak him. You know, you can't. It's really difficult to outbreak someone carrying corner speed. But after 27 laps, Dave, to still do your fastest lap time is, uh, you know, impressive. Yeah, I have to say, I thought that, like you said, Adam, it may not have been the the barnstorming battles that we saw in the past in MotoGP, but there was tension all the way through this. This was this was where we saw Peko really under pressure from Bastianini. And Neil, when you look at over the last few years, there were moments when Peko cracked, you know, whenever he was susceptible to pressure the pressure that he was being put under from Enea was massive. And, you know, he he was impeccable all the way. He didn't make any mistakes and he was able to come away with that fourth win in a row. Impeccable, I think is what you meant to say, Steve. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, I apologise for that. That is a uh, horrendous punnery. You were standing in front of an open goal there. Um, but uh, yeah. Can you, you say know, that three times quickly, Neil? <laughs> in my current emotional Standing state, in front of an open goal, standing in front of an open goal. <laughs> Not a chance. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I agree with you. Um, there was uh, there were some mistakes. I think um, Maverick mentioned it in the press conference afterwards. He was obviously pressuring Peko in the early laps. And he said, uh, you know, there had been a previous occasion at Misano in 2020 when he just sat behind Peko and waited for him to make a mistake and it came there. But, um, you know, there was usually, or there has been usually, a faster guy just behind him um, in the last couple of laps. And um, he somehow manages not to put a foot wrong. And um, strangely, his mistakes have came kind of earlier in races. Um, but when he's absolutely uh, got uh, got the pressure on him with one or two laps to go, he does seem to be able to just uh, ride a pretty faultless race. And you have to say, it's not always the most spectacular to watch because it's not all out fighting, passing and overtaking. But you have to admire his ability to just maintain his focus in light of that. So um, I think uh, Sunday was another case in point and he's just building up this momentum now that um, I think it's quite difficult to see, you know, where he gets stopped, who will, who will be able to stop him. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that he said that uh, he wasn't really thinking about people behind him. He was just riding his own line um, uh, and trying to be as precise and fast as possible. Uh, and the advantage of that was he said, like, basically, if I try, if I change my line to try to block people from behind, then I leave myself open to attack, um, uh, which is true because you're getting a little bit offline, and that means that you're going to be slow on exit. You know, you, you would either be a bit faster on on. 
complementary and turn in tight, a little bit wider, a little bit tighter. Uh, it means you lose out pl in places. But just by being as fast as possible everywhere, um, it meant that uh, people behind him had to had to work that much harder. And I think it's also worth noting that you know you can say it was it wasn't a very uh, or it, you know there wasn't much overtaking. But we've seen so many races at Misano in the past which have just been absolute processions where people have you know someone has just taken off at the front and disappeared and that's been it and the field has been strung out after about five or six laps that I think um, um, yeah this one delivered yeah and Dave I'm actually going to come to you next because it's a little bit of a, a jump forward into the show but I think it kind of leads in nicely your big talking point for the weekend was Fabio Quattararo's championship challenge and that kind of leads in from what Neil was talking about there with who's going to stop Peko. Fabio's got a 30-point lead, but he's given up a lot of points over the last few rounds. Yeah, I mean, over the over the last four rounds, um, uh, you know, obviously there are four races that Peko has won. That's 100 points. Uh, Fabio has scored 39 points, which is, you know, 61 points is a lot of points to give up. But even if you look over the past seven races, um, which I wrote about last night. Uh, Paco has got two DNFs and, um, Fabio's got one DNF. Uh, and despite that, Paco still has, uh, 125 points. He's still outscored Fabio Quattararo. Quattararo has 109 points from those, um, uh, from those seven races. Um, so things are looking a bit ominous. And I think th the story behind that is basically, uh, Yamaha had less work to do at the start of the season because they had to go back to their 2020 engine. The 2022 engine was, uh, the, you know, letting go and uh, going pop all the time. So they had to go back to the old engine. So they had less setup work to do. Um, uh, Ducati, I mean, I'm sure we can remember at the first race at Qatar that Banyaya was complaining that, you know, Ducati was still throwing new bits at him all the way through, uh, I think like FP1, FP2. And on Saturday, he basically rebelled and said, enough already, um, uh, stop it. I just want to get on and ride the bike. So it took him five, six races just to like to get settled into the bike uh, and to get a baseline for the bike where Quattararo had that baseline already and he was able to, to build up a decent haul of points at the start of the season. Um, the trouble is that Quattararo is now at the limits. I mean, because they had this, the, the bike sorted, you know, the baseline is set. Um, they have, there's, there's, there's nothing more they can get out of the bike. Um, Quattararo finished fifth and, and afterwards he said, look, this is it. This is the limit. This is the absolute maximum of everything I can get out of this. Um, uh, I rode very well, but P5, you know, he said, basically the, the problem is that there's no problem. The problem is that this is what the bike is capable of. He's having to take risks everywhere. Um, obviously we've got Aragon coming up, which is going to be a bad track for him, uh, but he's really going to have to hope that he can find something at a track like uh, Thailand where, he's, where he did really really well in his rookie year um, uh, places like Phillip Island Sepang um, uh, Mategi where I think he was also on the podium like he's really going to have to hope that the, he can turn things around in the in the flyaways because the bike is the bike. There's there's very little they're going to get out of it for the rest of the season. And the Ducati is really just starting to get into its stride. And there's probably 
a little bit more to come from the from the Ducati, and the Ducati is quite obviously the best bike on the grid now. I think it's you know you, you can't argue the fact that um, uh, Alessio Spargaro can't get the thing to work around sort of Austria and Misano uh, uh, and uh, Austin. It still has one or two weaknesses, but you know the, the Ducati is just a very very complete motorcycle now. So I it, I think it's going to be interesting to see how or you know whether he can save this, whether Fabio can save this, or whether, you know, the, the uh, Fabio um, or Pekka Benyard's relentless march continues. I feel that uh, we're almost reaching a, a sort of stage that was similar to last year in that, um, you know, Ducati are just building and Banyai are sort of building up ahead of steam that is uh, so relentless and, um, and so kind of dominant that, um, yeah, the rest are going to find it very, very difficult to live with them. Um you know, and the, at the end of last year, it was clear that the, the Ducati was the best bike on the grid comfortably. Banyaya had, I think, five podiums and four wins from the last six races. And, you know, by, the, by Valencia, it was just, uh, it was almost embarrassing for the others how good the Ducati was. They occupied the full front row in Valencia, uh, the podium as well. And they've almost been trying to sort of reach that stage again of dominance this year. And now you kind of have the impression that everything is so sorted with their bike that um yeah they have that sort of in hand over the rest now and um yeah i mean quadraro is riding on the limit to do what he's doing that um you do wonder if like one mistake is uh is maybe around the corner and i think one mistake is maybe all it would take for banyaya to be there i mean i think they're going to leave aragon with banyaya maybe 15 points behind or 12 points behind um going into the flyways and uh, that will mean that everything is pretty wide open I think the the difference between last year and this year is also that Pecco is just riding better. Um, uh, basically, since uh, since his crash at the Saxon Ring, um, he's been much more composed. He's been much more calm. Um, you know, he's just not making the same mistakes because we saw. Yeah, Pecco went on a real charge at the end of last year, but he was still making mistakes, and he's not making mistakes anymore. Yeah, I think as well, Dave. One of the things that was interesting at the weekend was we saw. Obviously, Jack Miller crashes out of the lead. Bezeki crashes pretty quickly after that. Bastianini had a massive moment through, I think it was turn 14. All these in those early laps. I don't really remember seeing Peko making a, a big mistake or a slide or anything that looked like it was going to be a big save from him as well, which was impressive all the way through that race as well. Yeah, we were talking um, during the race and I think, um, I mean... I, I can't remember who I referenced, but I thought it would be important for Peko to win just for the championship. Because, like Neil says, I think um, Aragon's going to be swinging in the favour of maybe Alessio Spargaro and, and also the Ducatis. But then when we go on the flyaways and we've got four events, three tracks of which we haven't been to for two years, that's where Ducati, even though it has been the best bike for the last 18 months, doesn't really have any data with their GP22 or GP21s. Uh, so that really could sort of mix things up a little bit. That could be where some of the outdatedness, you could say, with the M1 uh, could fall into Quattararo's favour. And if you're, you know, backing quite a rider of Quattararo's capability not to succeed at places like Sepang and also Phillip Island, then, you know, that's a very dangerous game. So it's, uh, I think, you know, Aragon is perhaps the most crucial race of Bagnaia's season because if he doesn't eat any points at that particular Grand Prix next week then uh, you know it could be a very tough job by the time we roll around to Valencia I think that's a very good point about setup about um, 
you know, d- not having the data, not having to do the work. Because especially if we go somewhere uh, and we lose a session to to weather, I mean, you know, Phillip Island, uh, you basically get sort of well four seasons, four seasons in in every session almost. So it, it's always going to be mean you're going to run out of uh, setup time. It's the one thing that the the factories and and teams always complain about is a lack of time to do setup. Um, and so actually having a bike that is completely sorted that you know exactly what you what it will do and what it won't do can be an advantage coming back to these tracks where they haven't been for two years um and where they you know that there's been all these changes and not sure how it's going to work so you know the less you change the better in this case Zaka did say that on thursday uh you know be clever i think was the the phrase he used um just like you said I, I think Bastinini was clever. I think he had full capabilities to win the Grand Prix. We mustn't discredit the work that Bagnaia did, um, as we've already mentioned. But, uh, you know, I think it was a, a mature display from, you know, from Bastinini who realized, you know, I'm, I'm about to try and do something very potentially risky with my future teammate, my future factory team employer. Um, but I don't think he let him win, but I think he gave him a good reminder that he's going to be there right until the flag and also potentially a lot of next year as well uh, I think also there's a difference between being faster than someone and being able to to, to get past them. I mean, Bastianini was clearly faster at that stage, um, but Bagnar had enough left to be able to, to to defend. And I think you know, as you both said, and as as I said earlier, I think he could uh, he could have got past him, um, but he wasn't sure that he could get past him cleanly. And I think that is the difference. Um, if it had been someone else, um, you know, if it had been Mark Marquez or if it had been Maverick Vinales or if it had been Alessio Spargaro, or even if it had been Jorge Martin or um, Jack Miller, uh, 100% Bastianini has to go and maybe takes them both out. But I think he, he his calculation was, you know, there is a less than a 90% chance of this sort of working. So let's not uh, uh, let's not bother. There's no point. The other thing is um, he made his point. You know, he was there with, uh, with Banyaya at the end. You know, like he, it was, as Adam said, it was a nice, timely reminder. Uh, lads, um, I'm here. Uh, d- d- don't think it's always going to uh, turn out this way. Um, so there was no, there was no real need. And if, if he couldn't get past safely, you know, right, really 100% safely, he wasn't going to go. Yeah, I think it was one of those situations where you're not in a time trial, you're in a race and Bastianini, he fluffed his lines on, on the chance to put himself in a position to make the move. He made the mistake and uh, then he wasn't in a position to be able to attack again. Maybe he had more pace than Peko, but he chose to wait until the last lap, thinking that if there was a move to be made, that's when he wanted to make it. And uh, it didn't quite work out for him as it is. It worked out great for Ducati. A 1-2 for them, their title contender winning the race. And uh, that's about as good as it gets really in front of a home crowd. We're going to take a quick break in the Paddock Pass podcast. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about Mark Marquez getting back in action during the course of this week's test as well. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 Glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. 
Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. Dave, we've heard uh, your big talking point of the weekend being uh, Fabio Quattararo's championship challenge and what's going to happen with that. But what was your what was your big moment of the weekend at Mazzano? I mean, um, my big moment, uh, I'm with uh, I'm with Big Neil for my big moment, which is um, uh, seeing Mark Marquez and uh, Andrea Dovizioso on the grid together before Dovi's last race. Uh, it was uh, it was a really touching moment because Mark was clearly there showing his respect uh, for a great rival. And Wilco Zielenberg had a great quote. You know, he said, you know, when he was racing, he never had enemies. When Dovizioso was racing, Dovizioso never had enemies, but he did have great rivals. Uh, And, you know, I, I think Mark felt also that um, the battles that he had with Dovi made his gave his victories meaning. You know, they they actually gave him something. They they made his achievements greater because he had to fight so hard for them. And the fact that Dovi pushed Mark so hard um, uh, and came so close close to winning uh, a championship. And let's face it, Pekka Banyaya won the race because. Um, Andrea Davicioso ground out all those era, all those hard, hard years at Ducati, actually fixing the bike, getting to the, getting it to the point where it is, uh, the best bike on the grid. So, yeah, I, 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 and seeing Mark and Dovi together on the grid, it sort of encapsulated that moment, I think. Yeah, I think that's fair enough, Dave. I thought that uh, their battles were always obviously one of the big talking points that we've had in the podcast over the last few years. I think obviously enough, the, the Austrian race is always the two that uh, spring to mind. But Dovi won more than his fair share of last lap battles. And when you look at him in his one two five career, his 250 career especially, he was a star in the making. When he came onto a MotoGP bike on that Scott Honda in 2008, he was fast right away. It just didn't quite work out for him really un- until he went to Ducati. Then he had the success that probably his talent always deserved. Do we think that's his last race? I mean, he's back testing today uh, and tomorrow. I mean, Kyle Crutchlow, <laughs> of course, was given a great send-off at Portimao two years ago. And since then, he's been back racing last year. And he's obviously taking Dovi's saddle for the remaining races of this season. I find it hard to believe that, you know, if somebody gets hurt next year, that, you know, Davizioso is not going to get a phone call and, you know, he's going to be enticed back to race at, you know, a Ducati or an Aprilia or a KTM or whatever. I don't think he's going to be back racing because he has no reason to, you know, like the K- he came back because he wanted to try and win more races and win another championship. Um, that just did not happen on the Yamaha. Uh, so I think uh, to an extent he's got his fingers burnt by this experience. <laughs> Secondly, um, as Neil says, he's not going to get a, a, get a chance on a competitive bike. You know, Ducati don't want him. Uh, Aprilia don't really need him because they can always put Sabadori on the bike. Um, uh, so there's no there's no real need for uh, for him to come back racing, and he's only going to come back to do something. Uh, you know, if he can be competitive, he's going to be off. You know, messing about with motocross bikes, he's going to be, um, I've sort of heard all sorts of things about him sort of setting up, also, you know, academies and teams or whatever. Uh, but he's going to have uh, much more important things in his life than uh, uh, substituting as a MotoGP rider. 20 quid says that he's testing a MotoGP bike within two years and he's back doing some sort of wild card or filling, you know, appearances. You know, Mark Town, September, September the 6th, 2000 and where we are, 22. 
Testing, uh, testing, I can believe. I mean, the, the, the reason that Cal Crutchlow came back was because he didn't have a job and uh, he was offered a, a chance to make a significant amount of money as a as a Yamaha test rider. And, you know, being paid a lot of money as a, as a Yamaha test rider means that also if someone uh, gets injured or goes missing, it means he's got to sort of step in and race, despite, from what I understand, Cal not being all that, keen about actually racing you know um the testing is fine but he's not so he's not that fussed about racing um i could totally see dovichoso getting on a motor gp bike just for testing but he's not going to come back and race because there's no real there's no need for him to do it he'll have another job he'll have other activities um uh he will ha- you know he's, he's going to be too busy well dave let's talk about a rider that would love to be racing, but has to settle for testing right now. Mark Marquez, he's just gone out on track. He's done, as we record this, he's done about two dozen laps at Mizano. It's great to have him back. And it's going to be really interesting to see when we actually see him race again. But uh, what was the talk around the paddock for when we're going to see him back in action? For me, I said a lot about, you know, the enthusiasm of the guy, but also the big balls he's got that, you know, in his media debrief, Steve, um, he was describing how he had ridden the CBR 600, uh, did a few laps and then woke up the next day and thought, oh, you know, there's no way I can do it again. But went to the track, had another go and he said it was actually okay. So, you know, you can only imagine what his body was feeling like, that muscle memory returning, you know, the, the forces or whatever, um, having to realign his whole physical shape to be able to do this, this discipline again. So for him to, you know, get through that little phase that little moment of worry um he was quite sort of articulate in his media debrief actually and and when he was speaking to all of us he also said that when he comes back to racing it's not just an intermittent thing it's not like there's pressure for him to race in motegi say uh for honda or and then disappear and then take a break or because we now go into an intense phase of the calendar you've got i think four or five events in what six seven weeks seven or eight weeks so it's it's a, it's, a, it's a hurried rush to the end of the season so mark probably couldn't have come back at a more frenetic time if you include all the travel and everything else involved so i think it's a, it's a big decision for him to make after this test whether he will come back in aragon or not because it was probably key for honda for him to be there just to you know pep everybody up for what has been a torrid spell of the season over the last month but also just to you know have a taste have a feel of some of the ideas that Honda have for, you know, 2023. So, um, you know, we wondered if he'll come back. He has. Uh, we wonder if he'll race. And that's still the question that has to be answered. And we'll know probably in the week, well, beginning of next week in the run-up to Aragon. Uh, just had a quick look at the timing at the moment. Mark has done 23 laps um, uh, from the timing sheets. He's done 23 laps in four runs, which means he's doing five or six laps uh, a run, which is you know pretty standard. Uh, the fact that he is now, as we speak, 11.23, and the testing has been going on since 9am, and I think he took to the track around 9.30, so he's done 23 laps in two hours. That suggests to me that uh, he's actually pretty good. Uh, because I remember when he came back uh, after, was it the the Sepang test uh, last year? Um, uh, maybe that he um, he said he took it really easy those few you know like they were being very very gentle with him uh, in those in that test and in those first few in those first few laps you know they had to really 
go very easy on him. And uh, this, it seems he's much more uh, focused, which to me means it, he's stronger. Um, the big problem is is his muscles, you know, like his, his arm was twisted and so the muscles have all uh, sort of grown twisted and they're sort of um, uh, stretched where they shouldn't be uh, and that needs to come back to place. And I, I think racing at Aragon would probably be a mistake just because, as you said, Ad, um, straight into a triple header. You know, it's just that is too intense of a start. Uh, I think he might race in Mategi, um, but, you know, he loves Aragon. He's won there a lot. He almost won there against last year against... Um, um, uh, against Paco Benyaya, um with one arm, basically. So if he thinks... He must know that he can. Uh, he has a chance to uh, to win, but he said he's not going to come back and then leave again. Um, so you would that would you would you would suspect that he, that that means you know he's going to come back. Uh, he'll do a race and then he'll stop and then he'll do another race. Uh, or he, he, he will only come. He, he will skip the first race uh, in the hope of doing more later on. So maybe Mategi, maybe Thailand. I'm intensely curious as to what Mark is riding in Mizano these two days. Uh, I'm sure he'll be riding the motorcycle that he's raced this season, which, you know, the struggles of Taken Nakagami, Alex, his brother, um, you know, and also Paul of Spargaro are well documented. Uh, that, was the know, bike, that was the bike that he went out on for his first couple of runs. This morning, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's normal. But if Honda has maybe some sort of radical shake-up or some idea where the, the bike has a noticeable improvement, particularly for Mark's style and the way he feels on it at the moment, then why would he also want to come back and compete with a model that clearly doesn't work for the majority of Honda riders yet? So this is another factor you have to consider. Um, but Steve, you, you know, you won't have to change your fantasy team anymore. Uh, you'll be back to getting a few <laughs> points for, for, you know... Not even bothering to enter the browser. I'll, I'll be honest, I'm confident as well, though, because straight away Mark's down into the 1 minute 32s. It's a fast time around Mizano. I think my faith in Mark will be rewarded by the end of the season in the MotoGP Fantasy League. I actually put him back in my fantasy team because I think he's, you know, he's going to come back at some point and he's going to, well, when he does, he's going to outscore um, Alex Reitz, who I replaced him with. So uh, that, that, I, that I think. But the, I mean, we know some of the things that uh, Mark is testing at, uh, at Mizano. Um, Honda have bought a an aluminium swing arm manufactured by Calex, which is um, astonishing, really. I mean, it's, it's genuinely a massive surprise that um, HRC would outsource stuff like that. HRC does not outsource stuff. HRC does everything in-house. The whole point of, ra of them going racing is to learn stuff. Um, and so they try to do everything in-house, even when it you know, fails completely. Um, perhaps, but perhaps this was one, um, were, you know, one failure too far. So they're going to be testing. Or maybe, a Dave, it could just be a quick fix, perhaps. Uh, it, it, swing arms generally aren't a, a quick fix. I mean, they can give you an immediate improvement, um, but it's much more of a long-term project because actually sort of, you know, getting it, getting it into its final shape. Once you've got, a, you know, once you've got a good swing arm, um, uh, then you can start to play and you can start to, uh, and, you, and you can start to tweak it. And, you know, Alex, well, Calix have got an absolutely proven record as far as that's concerned. You know, they used to supply a lot of the World Superbike uh, paddock. That um, uh, They bought a new swing arm for BMW and that seems to, 
in, in World Supers, and that seems to have really turned things around. So they're good at this. But I think the other thing they're going to be testing, you know, they'll be testing the twenty uh, the 2023 engine, uh, which, again, they will try to make a little bit more user-friendly. They'll probably be changing a little bit of a, a different weight balance for sure. They'll be testing different uh, different chassis to try to get some of that front-end feel uh, that they've lost this year. Maybe the Germans, German-speaking link, you know, working well for the Calex, but I can't see how a personnel, a personnel shift for HRC is going to be of any benefit when they really need a focus, clear direction, and knowledge at the moment. I mean, they've been the riders' expressions that we've seen. You know, these guys have been completely lost. So I think you know, taking out someone like Takeo would be a big mistake at this time. Uh, maybe if you know HRC founder again um, or you know wobble in 2023 then there's there's reason to to question the the role of these these kind of management personnel but um you know I, like you say Honda has sort of denied you know the the story and um I think there's there's got to be some some credence in that denial this time rather than just oh we're not ready to announce it yet yeah, what I heard was that um, uh, he's not out at uh, at the end of the year. Uh, he's been given another one year contract, so we shall have to wait and see. I think he'll be. I think he'll be there in twenty twenty three, but I wouldn't put any money on him being there in twenty twenty four. Yeah, I think that uh, it'd be very harsh to get rid of someone whenever you haven't had Mark on the bike as well. That's been Honda's strategy all the way. Wait and see how Mark goes for the first half of next year then make a decision seems like the more logical thing to do. We're going to take a quick break on the Paddock Pass podcast, but when we come back, we're going to wrap up about Mizano and we're going to look at our winners and losers. Renthal Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise, or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street Handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the WorksFit Handlebar Comparison Tool at Renthal.com to find the perfect bend. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. Adam, I'm going to come straight to you for your big talking points of the weekend. What was uh, what was your feeling over in Mizano? Uh, I would just like to ask you guys if there's any refreshed opinion on the image of MotoGP because we started off the weekend with Dorna publishing you know the results of the survey they did uh, that reached I think you know well over 170 countries uh, was answered by nearly 110,000 people um, it was run in collaboration with motorsport.com um, who also did some similar schemes for other series like F1 uh, you know Dorna were quite bullish about the results it, you know it's good in terms of getting this marketing data. Um, it's even more valid if you start to change the sport or some of your policies based on it, um, you know, which Dawn has started to do, as we can see with the sprint race format in 2023. Uh, we then, you know, the series took a bit of a turn. Uh, we had like Remy Gardner, of course, uh, and KTM um, continuing their sort of semi-public uh, fractious breakup. You know, so there was some discussion there again about the role of rider managers. Um, you know, he said, she said, uh, who's right, who's wrong. That kind of went on for a period of about 24 hours in Mizano. It was very much the talking topic. And then Pekka Bagnai unveiled, um, you know, <laughs> a helmet design that kind of split opinion in dedication to Dennis Rodman. Um, you know, undoubtedly a very colorful and distinguished NBA basketball player, but also one with a very, um, controversial, 
lifestyle and of course you know um some convictions and and you know a somewhat eccentric taste of life and and fraternizing with various people so there was that uh also that was a bit of a polemic subject um so you know coupled with the fact that the crowd was down by about fifty thousand for the weekend compared to 2021 uh you know i just it's, it seems like MotoGP is in a weird space, particularly if we talk about Italian influence. And this was something I've been writing on my column for OnTrackOffRoad.com. Uh, I mean, it'll be online later today, I hope. And, you know, at the moment, if you're an Italian fan, for example, you, you, I don't think you've ever had it better. I mean, before, maybe you only had Davizioso, Valentino Rossi, or, or a couple of guys in the, in the support categories to cheer. But now you have goodness me almost half a dozen very promising riders on the grid eight Ducatis two factories uh Bagnaia's won four in a row the first time a Ducati rider's done that and he's closing in could potentially win the championship so I, I don't really know apart from the obvious reasons of prices or, or date scheduling or whatever why Italian fans are not really embracing whether GP more than ever at the moment it was something I was trying to get to the bottom to um Luca Marini um you know, as usual, has a very interesting and, and studied take on it. He said that it's still very early for Italians in MotoGP. You know, there's like been a reset of the generation after the after the Rossi era, which is something, of course, being a stepbrother, he knows all about and has seen close up. So it's, it's a, it was just kind of a weird spell off the track, if you like, for MotoGP. And just to put the Rodman thing into some context, um, bizarrely and coincidentally, uh, Rodman appeared at the final round of the AMA Pro Motocross um, Pro National Motocross Series in the US that I spoke about earlier actually went into the TV booth and was commentating with James Stewart, um, you know, one of the, the greatest athletes that motocross has seen in, in North America. And, uh, you know, the, the reception to him was uh, one of a, an all-conquering hero while Bagnaia, you know, has a, a paint job on his helmet in dedication to him and it gets partially vilified i mean you could you could say that's something to do with american and european international uh, perspective on things but it was just curious to see how different people and different cultures different societies react to hero figures if you like so that's my long-winded um uh kind of wrap of mizarro steve <laughs> I think there is a, a, there's definitely a difference in the way that politics and sport gets mixed up in, uh, uh between the US and Europe. Um, uh, they, I think people put a lot more effort into trying to keep politics out of sport in, in the US. And obviously that's almost impossible. Uh, I mean, you know, the politics invades every single part of life. So why would it, why would it not invade, um, uh, uh, you know, sport as well? Uh, in terms of Dennis Rodman, I didn't. I actually didn't know about his um, uh, uh, about all the various accusations of beating uh, beating women and, and beating his wife, uh, which is actually absolutely execrable uh, behaviour. Um, but the one thing I thought was, well, you know, Dennis Rodman—that's the nutcase who hangs around with Kim Jong Un. So you sort of like thinking, well, why why would you do that? And also for. Especially for Pekka Banyaya. I mean, you know, he goes away on summer holiday, gets a drink driving offence, crashes his car, gets in the news, uh, and then he decides to uh, uh, 
what he doesn't need is more bad publicity. So what he does is he chooses, you know, an, an extremely controversial figure uh, to uh, for his helmet. Um, one last thing about uh, the, that MotoGP fan survey. Uh, it was also notable that the fan survey said, you know, we, we you know, it looks like uh, young women, uh, 18 to 34, sort of has real potential for growth for the market. And then on June, what is it, on Monday we get the, oh, yes, by the way, lads, we're going to Saudi Arabia, uh, where not a regime noted for its uh, for its um, uh, liberal attitudes towards uh, uh, women of any age. Yeah, it just feels like there were contradictions everywhere, you know. I mean, when um, I actually noticed Bagnaya was wearing a different helmet just from watching the monitor in the media centre, and I tweeted straight away, oh, I quite like that, it looks great. It was uh, a great helmet, then, it was a great-looking yeah, helmet, for sure. It was. <laughs> I mean, it was some, a really good variation on just the, the red and black he usually wears. And, uh, yeah, it was then, of course, you find out the reason for it and it just gets a little bit disappointing. I, I think more than anything is also the lack of self-awareness from Peko because, like I mentioned, he's in a position to be a real role model for the next generation of, of MotoGP fans, particularly in Italy. And, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, I mean, it's not an easy job and, uh, you know, he, he could be... I asked him about it, actually, in the post-race press conference on Sunday and he said that he's ready to open up more of himself to be able to fulfill that role of being, you know, the lead guy for Italian motorsport and Italian motorcycle racing. Um, I, I don't envy the position at all. I mean, you're going to lose a certain degree of privacy uh, and, you, you know, whatever you say and do is going to be scrutinized. But, you know, at the same time, you you, you profit from the, from the good stuff in the sport. So I, I think, you know, he just needs a little bit more PR help in that aspect. I think, um, you know, if you're prepared to perform in front of a million and a half people for the year at circuits around the world in different continents, uh, you're being interviewed in, you know, sometimes two or three languages. Uh, you're being paid to endorse several brands, sometimes brands that are not endemic to motorcycle industry. I don't think you can sit there and say, I'm just here for the racing. Um, you know, I think you're going to be asked because you're a public figure on the war in Ukraine, you're going to be asked about um, the environment, uh, the energy crisis, and it wouldn't hurt someone somewhere in, you know, who's working in the entourage of these guys. And let's be honest, they do have people in their corner who must be doing something than reading Speedweek or Motorsport.com to advise them saying, listen, you need to shape up and get an opinion on this. Um, you know, as much as I hate to say it, we've seen some guys in Formula One Sebastian Vettel in particular has been, you know, very articulate on, on different subjects like this. And the, the consequence, even though it shouldn't be the main motivation, is it just helps spread the word of the sport. If you have somebody who has an opinion on a particular subject, uh, you know, then it, it kind of it expands, it, it flowers, it, it shows that awareness that at the moment is lacking. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you want to be... <laughs> Uh, be careful what you wish for. Uh, all of a sudden, we could um, have uh, someone coming out as a massive Victor Orban for a fan and a Putin acolyte. But um, uh, you know, if they um, if if that's what they believe, then um, uh, that's uh, that's up to them. But um, speaking of uh, speaking of politics and sport, uh, yeah, I mean the uh, reigning World Superbike champions uh, um, uh, manager is um, very closely involved in uh, Turkish politics. Uh, politics and um, Erdogan and uh, all of the things which he has been doing to uh, rein in political opposition. So, yeah, I, it's 
it, it, it's always it's always problematic. And the other thing is like. Um, should racers be having an opinion on everything? Yeah, I mean, they might get asked about things. Um, but I mean, in a lot of cases, like I do not need uh, the, uh, well, I, I do not need Anaya Bastianini weighing in on w whether the gas price needs to be uncoupled from the electricity price within the <laughs> EU market or not. Um, I'm not sure it's his area of, of expertise. I mean, he may take a very close, uh, he may take a very, a very close interest uh, in it, but um, uh, it's hard to say. Um, so yeah, I think you have to be careful. Yeah, I think it's one of those situations where we saw Frankie Morbidelli obviously take a few stands about certain things and racism was one of the ones that Frankie went big on but that doesn't mean he has an opinion about everything and I think like Dave said you do need to be careful about it can be very easy whenever you get you know a lot of positive feedback for having an opinion on something to then immediately try and have an opinion on everything and you see that in all walks of life so I think it would be good if there was more from riders on certain things on the other hand, um, uh, here we are talking about domestic violence and Dennis Rodman's uh, convictions for, for domestic violence and violence against women on a, mo on a podcast about motorcycle racing. So in actual fact, more people are talking about it now. More people know about it now. Like I, uh, as I say, I'm, uh, I know I don't follow the NBA. I know very little about it. Uh, the only thing I knew about Dennis Rodman is he kept on turning up with Kim Jong-un, which to me always seems like a very che uh, a questionable choice of companionship but uh, uh yeah now at least if one thing positive things comes out of it is the fact that it's raised the uh, you know it, it's raised the topic of domestic violence and, and and that it happens and that um just because you're a superstar doesn't mean you can get away with it yeah that's true dave and the thing is as well steve is that um you know bagnaya probably was the size of a basketball when rodman was at his peak and actually performing <laughs> you know to, to the, the level that Bagnaya obviously wants to pay, you know, dedication to. Uh, you know, he obviously isn't a close friend. So, you know, if he wears a helmet and suddenly says, yeah, this is for Dennis Rodman, everyone's going to go, well, potentially, who's that? Google him and find this stuff out. Uh, it's possible they may have watched the Last Dance documentary on Netflix and they knew exactly what he was talking about. But it's like Dave says, it's just, um, it's thrown up all other a whole other ball of mess but then you know if you're an american motocross fan then you know he's uh, dennis robman's a legend and that's it i think i think though that's one of the things that you have seen at is that like when you walk around the paddock everyone's wearing jordan trainers because they watch the last dance and that's why peco's done this as opposed to you know when peco was i don't know three <laughs> you know sitting up watching the nba to watch the bulls play like it's it's highly doubtful but um that's what's happened with it and it's not where there's a big long thought out reasoned discussion about a lot of these helmet designs or a lot of these liveries look at all the different helmets we had this weekend look at all the different colors of bikes all these things that happen over the course of a weekend i'm i'm not doing any of this to you know bel belittle what rodman did off the course but i'm just saying from paco's perspective from the team around him I think it's it's easy with hindsight to be very critical of them for it. I think, yeah, surely, yeah, someone should have checked it or whatever. But I think that this is just one of those things. It's bad timing for Peko after everything that, that's gone on in Ibiza over the summer. Um, just quickly on that note, Steve, what you mentioned, the Grassini livery was brilliant. Yeah, the Grassini yeah. livery was brilliant. The VR46 livery was horrendous. <laughs> 
Well, let's uh, finish off the show with our winners and losers from Mizano. So, uh, Adam, we'll come to you first for uh, your w- big winner of the weekend. Uh, just a quick one, Steve. For part of the reason I mentioned earlier, uh, Luca Marini is my winner of the weekend. Two fourth positions in a row as well. Uh, he really looked like he was going to get into the fight for the podium. I think he was just over a second away from Maverick Vinales at the end. So um, it's coming along nicely. I think the Mooney VR46 can feel pretty chipper about this season, actually. Marco Bezecchi's, you know, firmly on the way to being Rookie of the Year. And Marini in his second year, uh, you know, as a sophomore, has um, shown signs that he deserves his place in the class. And, uh, you know, I think all, all, three, all four of us, you know, can say that when we go to a Marini debrief and we can ask him about the merits of uh, whatever, then he has an opinion, uh, he thinks about things, um, and he gives a good perspective. Um, you know, he's, he's a, a, a balanced young man, so it was always a pleasure to hear what he has to say. So he's my winner from Mizano. So I'm going to change mine to be Izan Guevara because I'm a big fan of Guevara and what he's been able to do this year. And you know, coming from having been the junior world champion, he's done a really good job second half of last year and then into this year. He was able to take advantage of Sergio Garcia's black flag and uh, now he takes on that championship lead. So he's my big winner from the weekend. Dave, what about you? Uh, well, I'm going to combine my winner and my loser um, because they're both from the same team. I mean, my big winner this uh, this week was uh, Maverick Vinales and my big loser is Alicia Spargaro. Um, Aprilia is, I mean, Aprilia have made such a massive step this year. We kept on, I remember, you know, we were talking at the start of the season, you know, is this, uh, uh, have Aprilia turned it around? Could this be the season that we, that they start to show themselves? But absolutely no question about that right now. Um, uh, Maverick Vinales is, uh, continues to outperform his teammate Alicia Spargra. I did the sums last night. In the last, uh, in the last four races, um, Maverick Vinales has outscored his teammate 55 points to 40. Um, and over the last seven races, uh, uh, Vinales is, is uh, you know, a little bit behind, uh, Espargaro. Um, Espargaro scored 80 points. Um, and Vinales scored 68. But the, the, the momentum really seems to have shifted. It's a bit difficult for for uh, Espargaro in that uh, he had two of his worst tracks back-to-back, Austria and Misano. Um, uh, he's really looking forward to going to Aragon. Um, but you've got to think that Maverick's going to be very good at, uh, at, Mar- at, at, at Aragon. And you sort of feel that the momentum is shifting towards uh, Vinales. Marini said that he was following... Uh, Vinales and he saw him making a lot of mistakes um, but the fact that Maverick Vinales was making a lot of mistakes and still finished third on the podium I think um, I mean it bodes really well for Maverick Vinales I think it once again underlines he's a really really class act and that when he has his ducks in a row and this is something which Massimo Rivola has been absolutely fantastic at um, you know putting his ducks uh, uh, putting everything in place for the, for his riders to be able to, uh, to, to perform um, um, we saw that with Alessio Spargaro. We're now seeing it with Maverick Vinales. The difficulty is that uh, Espargaro seems to have stalled. He seems to, you know, he's, he, he needs to regain some momentum. He's lost the momentum. That, I think, is Rivola's next challenge. So, um, yeah, you, you a, 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 a two-in-one. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I have to say, for me, Alessio's maxed out. And now you've got it where Ducati with a horde of Ducatis can get in front of that. Fabio is obviously 
Austria especially did a really good job to get himself back up onto the podium. Now's the real time for Aleix to dig in, see if he if he has the chance to to win the championship. The momentum has definitely shifted away from him. But Neil, what about you? Who's your big loser? Uh, Remy Gardner, Steve. Um, just a, a, a bad weekend overall, um, just like Austria. And um, yeah, you just you kind of feel for the guy. Um, said that he's brokenhearted. Obviously, uh, his MotoGP dream has come to an end after one year. And um, it, it looks as though that's kind of affecting just, uh, you know, performance on the track as well. Um, I guess we could probably have our own podcast uh, on the merits of uh, of disposing with Remy Gardner after one year. Um, maybe we can save that discussion for another day because we're coming towards the end of this one. But um, yeah, I would say it, it's it's been a real tough time for him recently. It looks as though subpar World Superbike seat or returning to Moto2 really is on, is on the options. So um yeah, I wouldn't say it's a great uh, state of affairs, especially as uh, Ralph Fernandez had a pretty good race. Yeah, that was actually a question that we got in from uh, Marcus, one of our patrons, and he was asking, where do we see Remy going? You know, what are the options of moral superbikes? Because for Marcus, the to see him take a step back to Moto2 wouldn't be a positive step. And it's very difficult to see where he'd go in moral superbikes. There's no factory seats really available unless you look at the second seat that Ducati hasn't been filled is Remy Gardner going to be in play for that probably not you know you're up against Petrucci Rinaldi you know you're looking then at uh, maybe a Bonovo seat that's still to be full that looks like it could be for Garrett Gerloff there's a Pichetti Kawasaki seat Tom Sykes looking for that Gerloff still in play for for maybe that seat as well so are you going to take Remy probably not and uh, interestingly, Neil, just to to once again copy you, uh, my big loser at the weekend was KTM because no one comes out of what you have to look at on the face of it as being a farcical situation at the weekend where he said, she said between a rider and uh, a team uh, and a team, it never works well. And both of them come out of it looking pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, it's, you're right to a degree, Steve. I mean, I think they handled the Petrucci situation by giving him a guest ride, you know, and let him fulfill a dream by going to Dakar. Um, that kind of smoothed over any any hints there because Petrucci, of course, was a very popular guy in the paddock. Uh, for Gardner, I, I just I struggled to see. I mean, does he go back to a category that he's always won? Um, he has to also watch his weight, uh, you know, make those compromises to, to fit in in Moto2 again. I think that would be a real indication of his, his love for Grand Prix racing and what he does. Um, in which case you kind of think, well, why not show that, that push, that attitude, that desire in your first year in MotoGP by, okay, you're frustrated by the bike. You might be frustrated by your setup. Um, but just keep it tight lipped. I mean, like Dave said, I mean, silly season 2024, it's a matter of months before you can start talking to somebody else once the season starts. I mean, contract, contracts are talked about and decided months, even years in advance. So all he had to do was like plug away, ride the thing, you know, like a hundred percent, like I'm sure he did, um, and and just show the the the, the right mental approach. So it's um it's, it is a tricky one. Yeah, I think it is one of those situations Ad, where there's no simple solution to a, a question like it as well. What's happening within KTM? I think for them to be able to bring Paul across to Gas Gas next year makes a lot of sense. And then you're looking at it and saying. You know whether it's a choice between Augusto Fernandez stepping up or Remy Gardner. Gardner's attitude this year may not have been what KTM wanted. You know we saw obviously I think it was as early as Hareth whenever he was he was very critical of the bike. So KTM don't like that, and uh, maybe with Fernandez they're going to feel that uh, with a Spanish Spanish bike, a gas gas, that having two Spaniards on the bike makes more sense than having an Australian on the bike. I think it's a shame for Remy 
But if he doesn't step back to Moto2, he's not going to have an awful lot of options. He's always been fast in Moto2. Obviously, last year was the one year where it all came together. He was on the IO bike, had a lot of success, won the championship. But Raul Fernandez was also arguably the more impressive rider for most of the season as well. So Remy, there's still question marks about him. I'd like to to see what he does going back to Moto2 because a bit like what we've talked about in the past in that class, it's always good when you've got a Sam Lowe's there, someone that you know what their level is. We know what Remy's level is. I think it'd be good if we saw him in there and he became one of those yardsticks with which to judge everyone again as well. He's never going to say it, but I would love to have been on a fly on the wall when maybe Pit Byer or, or Jens Heimbach were talking with Aki Ayu about Augusto Fernandez because I, I suspect that he maybe has a more glowing appraisal of Augusto compared to Remy in terms of the way they approach you know, working with the team and uh, a championship. Steve, my loser, just to quickly um, go into sort of we're getting towards the end of the podcast, my loser was Franco Morbidelli. And actually, I'd love a, a quick um, word of note for his uh, communications and PR people at Yamaha, uh, particularly in Ept on this occasion. I sent them an email asking for an interview of Franco, didn't even receive a reply. I kind of thought that Franco might be, you know, one of the riders that isn't unindated with interview requests. Um, and yeah, so that was um, a bit of a black mark, although somewhat typical, I have to say. Uh, but yeah, Franco, we've been attending his media debriefs most of the season. He's obviously been a little bit of uh, just trying to fit a square peg into a round hole uh, when it comes to the handling characteristics of the M1. He knows he can't change everything. He's trying to change himself. Um, and, and his style and the way he races the machine and it's been a tough ask and a track where he won two years ago uh, you know just to crash out so early on uh, you know it must be another sort of kind of soul destroying bit at the end of uh, at the end of the, the weekend and I just um, I don't know I like the guy because he's always such a, a laid back mild mannered guy uh, so kind of generous with his thoughts when he's he's on form um, I'd like Franco to find some sort of uh, recompense, let's say. Yeah, I think uh, everyone would like to see that because Franco, when he's on form, is fantastic. We saw it all the way through his Moto2 career. Obviously, we saw flashes of it in MotoGP whenever he was on the Petronas bike, partnered up with Quattro We just haven't seen it the last year with injuries and, and whatever factors playing in, into that. But um, I think obviously for, for us, one of the big things is that uh, you boys have to get ready for Aragon. So you've got a week off and then you're straight into it. You've got uh, Aragon to Motegi and all the flyaways coming up. So uh, this week's going to be you an important well, week for... Uh, well, I'm, I'm back to World Superbikes, but I've had a few weeks off, Adam, you know, so uh, <laughs> it's not too bad for me. Superbikes is a good schedule, you know, week on, week off now for pretty much the rest of the season, so I can't complain too much. Make sure you get a bit of a massage because when you swing a golf club, it just affects your, your microphone holding position, you know, when you're on comms. <laughs> So you don't want to be like lagging by the time you get to the third race of the weekend, Steve. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I, I could take some of the barbs from the ad, but I've had Suzuka eight hours. I've had CEV or Junior GP action as well. You know, I had a busy summer break this year. You know, it hasn't all been golfing, although the last 10 days were literally spent doing nothing but golfing. But um, I think it's, uh, it's always worth mentioning as well about... Uh, what we offer everyone over the course of a Grand Prix weekend, obviously Adam and Neil were at Mizano, so they last weekend they were able to offer the Paddock Notes show each day, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, to all of our Patreon supporters, patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. We also had it this month where an awful lot of our patrons were able to receive their exclusive Paddock Pass podcast coffee mugs. And uh, David won't like it, but a lot of people have been sending in pictures of <laughs> cappuccino.
cappuccinos <laughs> and lattes and, you know, basically just milk drinks, milk-based drinks, Dave, in the entirety. But I'll tell you what, if you if you get the mug, it's up to you what you want to fill it with. But uh, that's been for all of our patrons on the $10 tier. So for the Paddock Notes tier, you're able to get an exclusive Paddock Pass podcast coffee mug. So uh, check that out on Patreon and uh, be sure to drop us a tweet at Paddock Pass Pod or you can tweet any of us directly and uh, we'll try and answer your questions in the build-up to next week's Aragon Grand Prix as well. And uh, until then, Dave, Neil, Adam, big thanks for joining us on the podcast this week. This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Uh, of all sorts, and um, he was just generally a really, really terrible person. Was he an F1 fan? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>